I'm Tom from the Ballpark Bros. Here's Mike. This next presentation on the Four-Eyed Radio Network is brought to you by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off on your order. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Crichton Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base. Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir. He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. Where they were married. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. sure before yeah well it was because of the uh the weekends because my shift was monday through friday 3 p.m to 11 that's my Mm -hmm. shift except to cover weekends they pull people from all the different shifts so i was every third saturday and every 16th sunday and any time that i worked a saturday that means they had to give me a day off during the week to make up for working a saturday and same thing with the sunday if i worked the sunday then i had to have a day off during the week to to make up for that uh that that day um, <clears throat> so that's why I'm like, ah, I've got to take a look at the schedule and see, is this, is this a weekend that I'm working? And if it's a Sunday week, that means I work the Sunday and then have the extra day off after that. If it's a Saturday, that means I have the extra day off during the week before working <sighs> the Saturday because of the way, you know, they start the weeks Sunday through Saturday. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, convoluted and now my schedule is going to be really wonky, but I should... No, the only uh, question mark is I did, you know, on the the first week of the schedule, I did uh, give them leeway on Monday, Tuesday, as far as, you know, needs of the the business. You know, you can give me either the Monday or the Tuesday, um, you know, whatever you need to to fill, you know, for other vacations or other things like that. Oh, okay. So so it's not uh, 100% guaranteed that I'll have that Monday off after working the Sunday every time. I might work the Monday and then have the Tuesday off, but that's not a big deal. The big thing is that get every friday off even no if that's it's not gonna my be weekend. huge yeah so yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna talk to the guys and see if they're willing to do a skype show with me um not every single week i was thinking maybe like once or twice a month that's what i was thinking like even show. a monthly if it's like the the first fridays of the month or whatever it is you know like yeah that'd be great so yeah. and then i reached out to uh, uh aaron gallo does the starfleet escape podcast because mm-hmm. we've done uh in fact, actually, we're going to be releasing, hopefully on Monday, um, the show that me and him recorded back in November. <laughs> he's he's had some uh, some health issues and some family issues and then vacation and then some other health issues. And he's had some all, all sorts of things stopping him from getting that episode edited and put together. And then he just told me he uploaded it uh, right now. He's like, let's go ahead and get it out for Monday. I'm like, all right, sounds good. Um, uh-huh. But I reached out to him because basically the only time he has available to record is Friday evenings for him. And um, he's also been having trouble because, you know, uh, Eric Berry, who the, does the 
Power Ranger podcast Power Rangers, was his yeah. primary co-host, but he's really focusing on the Power Ranger stuff. So he doesn't have a lot of time to, you know, between work and family and the Power Ranger podcast, he doesn't have a lot of time to to do that. So I reached out to to Aaron and been, was like, hey, I would absolutely love to uh, to do some more shows with you if you want to get some more content out there. Now that I'm going to be off on Fridays, I could do a sass or two a month and then the alternating <laughs> Fridays I can record Star Trek with you. And he seemed to be on board with that idea. So, uh, Very cool. There might be a hell of a lot more of me on the network soon. Yay. Nice. Yeah, I mean, now that you've <laughs> got so me. much time on your hands, oh, consistent time. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 big knowing that I'll have those days off specifically. Um, and having that three-day weekend every other week will be nice as well. Yeah. The one big suck factor is the Sunday shift because the Sunday shift is not my normal shift. And the Sunday shift is a 7 a.m. shift which is the oh. stupidest thing in the world for a third shift person to have to work. I was going to say, yeah, going from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. And now I'll be doing off. 1 to 11 on the days that I work. So, oh. yeah, it's 1 to 11 every day that I work except for Sundays, which is 7.30 to 5.30. And that includes wow. the Sundays that I work right after working Saturday. So I'll be working Saturday until 11 p.m. and then have to come back at 7.30 the next morning. It's dumb. <laughs> Totally dumb. It's just dumb. All right. Excuse me. All right. I think we should probably uh, get rocking and rolling. Yes. Uh, All right. I'm ready for you. So get the recorder going. Check, check, check. Check, check. Let me get a test on your side just to make sure I'm still seeing right levels. Check, check. One, two, three. Check, check. All right. Looking pretty good on this side. So as long as I... Speak consistently directly into the mic. We should be we should be okay. I, I find when I move a little bit away from the mic is when I start to have uh, issue. But I can also turn the gain up just a tad, and hopefully that will help even things out. <clears throat> yeah. All right. So, all right. Uh, I'm ready. Ready you are. All right. Go ahead, Eric. Let's talk about virtual reality and sex in the '90s. Oh yeah. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Were you making Hold a pass up. at me? Was that I, was that harassment? No. I I don't know how to. Um, <laughs> I need to talk to my lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty good call. Um, yeah, so we're talking about uh, disclosure. Yes. Which, I'm just going to say this right off the bat. Okay, do it. I did not hate this movie as much as I remember hating this movie. Okay, me too. <laughs> For some I, reason, I had it in my head that this was a bad movie, like bad, but like Rising Sun bad level movie. Mm-hmm. And rewatching it, and despite you know, with the exception of the very poorly aged tech references, it was a good film. Yeah, no, I so this is one that I got added to my list of. Oh, hey, this is a really good book and a really good movie. Yes, I enjoyed both of these. The the minor changes that happened. I mean, there's one large change that happened between the two, but the minor little changes are like, well, that's okay. Those are kind of needed for time. I could see that. I mean, I didn't feel like I lost anything uh, between the book and the movie. I mean, I could have watched the movie first, gone back to the book, and just got a little bit more detail, but still, the whole general story was there. Yeah, exactly. It was a it was a fairly faithful translation. Uh, with the exception of a few, uh, there were a few little changes that, you know, we have to put into that question mark bin. Like, why? <laughs> why specifically that change? I, I'd yeah. be curious to know. Um, right. Very little things. And there, there were a couple of bigger changes. There's a character in the book who just simply does not exist in the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. We see that from time to time when they give the, and I can understand it because there's only a couple of important things that that character does. And they just give that 
to other people. You know, right. they just kind of like, okay, well, we'll give this part to you and we'll give this part to you and boom, there we go. Um, and I did like that because a lot of the details, even though you changed the characters a little bit, those details was, were still all there. You didn't lose any of those details at all, even down to um, the hinge on the new CD-ROM players that weren't working. I mean, that got alluded to enough times that they're like, okay, I mean, you could have just thrown that one problem away, really, if you wanted to, because the big thing was about the air handlers and what got changed. But yeah, the, the um, two that detail was ones, still there. Yeah, the two big ones were the, the chip placement and the, the air handlers. Mm-hmm. The, but then the I think the third one was just thrown in there. Honestly, I think it was just a, a pylon type of thing. It was like one of those yeah. things we want to show just how bad she is at this, that she made all of these changes, like not just one or two, but three big changes three. that that really were detrimental to the uh, the problem. And I think also what it helps, if it was only one of them or even two of them, it might have been easier for him to figure out before because he would have been only dealing with the one mm. thing. Because he was dealing with so much, it's one of those things like, uh, I, I don't know, I know there's a technical term for it. But it's like when you go to the doctor and you've got these 10 symptoms and the doctor just cannot figure out there is no disease that fits these 10 symptoms. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> well, it turns out you actually had two things going on. One of them right. was causing these six symptoms and the other thing was causing these four symptoms. And that's why the doctor couldn't diagnose you because he wasn't looking for two problems. He was looking for one problem that caused everything that was going on. Yeah. And that, I think, is kind of what we're dealing with here, where he's looking for the one thing that's causing all of these problems. And it turns out it was three things causing these problems. And that's why he didn't, it didn't click right away, because he, we're led to believe he's a very smart and technical guy. And if it was just one problem, if it was just the chip placement, they would have been like, OK, with power fluctuations to the chipset, what could cause that? Everything else is fine. We've got power fluctuations to the chipset. Well, if they're not seated correctly, that would cause that. Let's take a look at that. Um, you know, or if it was just the hinges, oh, we're getting a power flicker, we're getting a screen flicker. Well, that usually indicates a hinge problem. Let's take a look at that specifically. You know, if it was just yeah, one be- of those things, they probably would have figured it out much quicker. Right. No, and uh, I apologize for throwing in so many technical things to those of you listening within the first three minutes of this episode, <laughs> but we're very excited about this episode. <laughs> but to be fair, we've covered uh, just about the same amount of technical information that the book and movie cover. This is one of the few books. This was a very, very quick read because, first was. of all, it keeps you engaged. Mm-hmm. You're engaged the entire time. You want to just keep reading. You want to find out what, what happens next, what's going on. You, you want to continue reading. You don't hit these big, long sections of tech information. There's a few smaller sections of tech information. There's one specifically notable uh, time when uh, he's, <laughs> he has to explain what the Internet is. Um, <laughs> that was that was yeah. interesting. <laughs> one of those poorly dated tech references, like, like we said, is all the Internet, which is a communication system used by universities and hospitals. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we know what the Internet is, guys. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But... I to give credit where due. So this book was published in January of '94. So he was writing this in 1993. Talk yeah. about you know forward thinking, especially in the book when he talks about cell phones the size of credit cards mm-hmm. and things like that, and even the virtual realities play where okay, well now I've got an HTC Vive, I can go really into virtual reality and do these type of things. Um, it, it's really neat. So when you Let if you put you yourself though. in the '90s, that's very cool. <laughs> From today's standpoint, you're kind of like. Like, eh, I'm going to breeze through this real quick. <laughs> the, the virtual reality part is actually pretty cool because, you know, we do see that now. And it's, it's very similar, you know, except instead of having this whole apparatus that you have to attach yourself to, you can literally just clip your phone into a little goggle headset and do it. 
But yep. I do have to ask, at any point with any of the, the VR systems or the Oculus or the, the Google VR or the, the Samsung Gear, mm-hmm. has anybody ever looked at that and said, hmm, you know what this needs? File manager. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> you might give me a lot of shit for this. That's what I want. So I have a <laughs> Pixel. I, I am no joke. I have a Pixel XL and I have the, the Google VR and it's really, really cool. But I would love to sit there and swipe through all my Google Drive files and reorganize them in virtual reality. Why? Okay. I, st- I, don't I stand know. corrected. I didn't. Th- I, I thought literally that would be the last thing anybody would ever be like, okay, games, uh, you know, communications, like being able to like, I met, you know, one person sitting on a beach on vacation, like, hey, check this out. And they're using a 3D camera and other people are throwing on their VR headsets to act, you know, like, oh, cool. Like that would be a cool way to share vacation photos as opposed to, you know, slides that everybody's bored to death with. Right. Uh, no, I think I think it'd be so. I just think it'd be cool to organize my entire. I'm like, oh, my Google Drive is so messy. I need to clean it up. It'd be cool if I could do that and just swipe things around. You know, like they do in the movies when it's a big old screen. You know, on your wall. And give, I give I'm it the that uh, guy. Eric. Uh, Eric, I am that guy. <laughs> <laughs> set it up like uh, set it up like Minority Report with the with yeah the exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. I want to be Tom Cruise in my report. I'll, right. I'll wear my goggles hey. and do it. But I, I do love the fact that, um, you know, to like scroll through my uh, photos and things like that, that is really cool to see. And, uh, you know, and it, their photos are so big that you can just kind of like look from corner to corner and browse it differently. But, yeah, I would love to do file management in VR. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Google, uh, we know you're listening because you listen to everything. Um, That's right. Okay, Google. Um, sorry if I turned anybody's uh, phone I, on right now. I was going to say, I better make sure my phone is off. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, hey, Google, get get on that. We need uh, we need a corridor system. I, I need and, a corridor, and I want an angel, too. <laughs> as long as it doesn't look like the angel from the movie. Uh, oh, my gosh, yeah. Which was great because it, just, it was the programmer who made himself an angel, which yeah. was just effing awesome because that's what a programmer would do, would put himself into the oh, software yeah. somehow. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that um, was a very cool reference. So Now, I want to go back and talk a little bit about the novel and the writing of this. Absolutely. Um, so the year before this was published, Michael Crichton sold the rights to it for a million dollars. So this book came out in January. The movie came out in December of the same year. And uh, Michael Crichton, uh, he had said one time when he was in medical school that when he found out he could write a book in a week and make $2,500, that's what kind of got him into writing. First off, writing a book in a week is nuts. But this guy is writing a book and then going on to producing, help, producing the movie within the same year. <laughs> just crazy also on the producing standpoint this is his first movie that he produced and i have a theory on why that all changed after rising sun all right well um yeah definitely like like we said um definitely far superior quality to rising sun and i'm not i'm not sure why i had such a poor memory of this movie because i i had seen it before and it wasn't one of those ones that i specifically point to when I talk about, you know, the, you, we, we talked about how the whole reason this podcast came about is because we were having a discussion about how Hollywood seems to ruin all of Crichton's work, with the exception of Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Um, this was, of course, before I even knew the Great Train Robbery film existed, so I, di- I didn't know about that that film being so good. Um, right. But this this wasn't one of the ones that I specifically pointed to. The ones I would specifically point to are uh, were Rising Sun, <laughs> and and there's one more we haven't talked about it yet, so I won't uh, won't do any spoilers on that. But there was one there's one more that I always point to is like these two are the absolute worst. Great books, horrible movies. Um, 
this one was, wasn't one that I would specifically point to, but it was always in the back of my mind as being one of those films. And yeah, so it kind I, of I'm flew not... under the radar. It wasn't the best. It wasn't a Jurassic Park, but it wasn't a Rising Sun, so I never really alluded to mentioning Disclosure at all. Yeah. I mean, it did very well as far as, uh, as, far as box office and uh, reception at the time. Yeah, it was a top 15 movie of the year, did $214 million. So uh, this is a very good – I mean, heck, if I'm Michael Crichton, I'm going to continue writing books for movies too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not sure what it is that uh, – I'm honestly surprised at myself having this weird bad memory of this movie. And I'm wondering uh, if we're going to run into other ones like that when I rewatch these films and be like, oh, yeah, that's not so bad. In fact, actually, it's – pretty good right um, well because one of them we haven't talked about yet is one that i remember really really liking and i'm thinking to myself i might actually hate this and not realize it <laughs> yeah it could go, could go the other way disclosure again could go the other way right um, right yeah so so sticking with the with the novel for a second um like i said with the exception of the the tech references every other reference in this book dates rather well you know when we're talking about the sexual harassment and the the power structure you know whether it be you know we're we're still unfortunately to this day and age talking about um you know issues with with men being sexually harassed and women being sexually harassed and being afraid to report it because of repercussions or using it as a as a weapon that's a big theme in this in this uh, story is that it, it's being used as a weapon as opposed to an actual incident um, we, we still deal with this 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 stuff mm-hmm. hasn't gone away <laughs> yeah and that's true and, and the the corporate power struggle and mergers and everything else like that I mean this all of that stuff. If it wasn't for the technical references, this book could have come out today, and it would be a very real story. And this was based off of um, a true story. Uh, Michael uh, Crichton was talking to a lawyer who was sharing a story of this corporate struggle and what had happened. And he, Michael Crichton had always kept that in the back of his head and then realized, yeah, this is, could be a really good story. And so this is based off of something that really did happen at some point. And I'm sure it has happened many times. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, he was talking about how <clears throat> this can be used as a weapon because it, it affects the person who is accused regardless of the outcome of the investigation. It can be found out later on that it was completely fabricated. And it doesn't matter. You know, It, it can cause irreparable damage to a person's reputation, career, life, just the accusation. So people are, are walking on eggshells trying to make sure that it doesn't happen to them and and you know it, it still can um we, the the culture is still there you still have a power when you when you're the boss and it doesn't matter what gender you are as the boss you have to be conscious of not only the things you're saying and the things you're doing but how those things may appear to others because you may not even notice it right i did notice um one thing that was changed between the book and the movie really plays on that, and I think it was a good addition to the film that we did not see in the book. Uh, and that was the, the interaction with his assistant. Yes, how, especially in the beginning. Did you notice that right away? Yeah, how they, they kind yep. of focus, and they do it just briefly so that if you don't know what's coming, you don't even think about it because you, you don't even it's, think about it. Where he just, It was natural. He just pats her on the butt with his file folder. But did you yep. also notice, like they focused on him doing that to her, but do you notice like maybe two or three minutes later in the film, he does it to one of his male co- colleagues as well. Yep, they don't focus on it, but he does it. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, see, that, that's just a thing he does. He's, he's not doing it on purpose. And I'm 100% certain that if any of them said, hey, could you, could you not? He'd be like, oh, sorry. And he wouldn't. Like, I, right. I, I guarantee. And so that's one of the, the themes here 
is that sometimes people are doing things that they don't realize are mm-hmm. harassing. They're not doing it on purpose. They're not doing it for power. They're just doing things that they – it's just their manner. And no, you shouldn't just, okay, well, it's just their manner. I'm going to just let it happen. No. It's more of talk to that – you know, make it known that you don't like that before making a federal case out of it. Just say, hey, you know, I don't, I don't like that. And if they don't right. respond, if they say, oh, it's just how I am and they continue doing it, then you've got a problem because then they're aware that it's an issue and they're doing it anyway. That's mm-hmm. a different story. But yeah, totally different. I'm glad just, you brought her up. Uh, she was one of my favorite, um, not added characters, but characters with uh, more to them in the film. I love in the end when she smacks him back. Yes. <laughs> that was so great in the end. So, But, you, but you're right. And those were great little details. Because, yeah, if you weren't paying any attention, you saw the one, but you didn't see the fact that he literally did that to a male coworker, uh, like, yeah. scenes later. Yeah. yeah. And in the... It's even described – I mean it's it's fleshed out a bit in the book even though that scene doesn't happen in the book. The setup for it is because they mention in the book that he used to play sports. He was a jock. So it makes sense. Like that's – I mean watch a baseball game. <laughs> yeah, watch a football they're, they're game. They're all touching yeah, each other's butts all over the place. I don't mm-hmm. – that's the one thing I'm like I don't, I don't get that. <laughs> like I did no. a good job. Why are you touching my butt? <laughs> <laughs> but – that was just his personality. That yeah. was him. There was never, ever, ever anything sexual about it. It was just good game. Yeah. That's what and, it was. And, mm-hmm. and again, I do feel that he was the type of person who, if he was told, that makes me uncomfortable, he would stop. It wouldn't be a just, oh, it's just, uh, he wouldn't try to play it off or disregard it. He would be, oh, I'm sorry, and stop, <clears throat> which is the difference between harassment and not harassment is right there is where when you're made aware that it's not welcome, you stop. Right. Yeah, you, know, uh, you hear people like, oh, you can't ask out anybody in the workplace because it's harassment. No, asking them out the first time isn't harassment. <laughs> it's continuing It's if they say, no, I'm not interested, and you continue to push, um, then it you know becomes harassment. Um, <clears throat> Which the lawyer in this case even talks about that and alludes to that and everything because she's married to an attorney and he asked her out five times. And she she describes that as what actually would have been harassment yeah. back then. And yeah, now he's, he's you would never specific- have that happen. Yeah, she says that, that he told her even like, you know what, if, if we had started now, I would never have asked you out the second time. And right. definitely not the third, fourth, or fifth times. So, yeah, it's, it's a different culture. It's a different... Uh, situation you have to watch out for that kind of stuff because sometimes it's 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 there's a big gray area there because as uh, meredith points out in this film there are times when people say one thing and mean another and they're playing you know they're playing the, the hard to get or something like that that does happen but you can't assume that that's what's happening you, right. you have to take people at their word and then you know if you're <clears throat> you know if you're quote-unquote playing hard to get and the person takes you at your word the first time, then you you have to make the move at that point. You have to be like, oh, hey, I was actually – I am interested and I'm sorry I said that I wasn't because I thought you might keep trying, but obviously you're not. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it kind of puts it kind of puts pressure back on the, the other people to step up if they actually do want any kind of a relationship. But you got to be careful. You know, you got to take people at their word and you can't assume – that maybe they're just doing this playing hard to get type of thing. Right. One of the other characters and changes that happened in the movie that I didn't know if I agreed with at first, but I really did towards the end was his wife. Just the the so fact that she stayed in she town stayed instead of um, going to Phoenix, going yeah. to Arizona. The thing that so, I didn't like about that change was mm-hmm. uh, how they 
made her find out about the information. I liked that in the book, the lawyer tells him, go tell your wife right now. Right. She needs to know so that nothing can get sprung on her later. Tell her. And he goes, he buys the tickets for her to go before calling her and saying, okay, now here's what happened. Also, I need you to take the kids and go away for a while. Right. No, yeah, you, you are right. I, I didn't like the fact that it seemed like he was still hiding this, and she found out from uh, from Lewin when they're at the dinner party, which yeah. Dennis Miller as Lewin is the perfect character. I, as I understand it, when uh, Crichton was writing that character, he had Dennis Miller in mind. Nice. I, so, which I, totally makes sense. I mean, after seeing the movie, I was like, yes, this is a this is completely a Dennis Miller thing. I I love this first opening stuff talking about uh, her nipple pencils and everything else <laughs> like that. Oh my god! Yeah, they definitely yeah, uh, the they definitely even made him a little bit more Dennis Miller for the movie. Mm-hmm. But even in the uh, in in the book, you still get a little bit of that. It's it's not as um, direct, and I think that. That is something I want to talk about. But uh, while we're while we're talking about the casting, we do want to uh, mention we get to see the second Crichton film with uh, Donald Sutherland in it. Yes, which is fantastic. Uh, which just made me want to watch the Great Train Robbery again. Let's be honest, because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I think the casting there was perfect as well. He plays mm-hmm. the great asshole boss, and yeah. he, he does it to perfection. Um, the sleazy corporate lawyer—I forget the actor's name—but I think that was a fantastic casting too, because he's the kind of guy who can act like your friend while right. at the same time stabbing you in the back and that's exactly what Blackburn does in both the book and the and the film he's, he's mm-hmm. that's that's who he is and you know not quite as weaselly not weaselly enough to get the uh, Steve Buscemi casting but you know right up there with the with the the possibility and I think even the casting of uh, Demi Moore as Meredith Donchon was uh, really really good as well because you have this woman who definitely has the ability to 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 take on that corporate power look and directness while also being smoking hot being and that's sexual how, and smoking you, hot yep. yeah that's how she's described in the book it's just this absolutely uh, adorable gorgeous woman but when she turns it on for the corporate speak it works and people believe mm-hmm. it that's what they said. They like they they went into this meeting skeptical, and then she gave this video presentation and talked about stuff, and everybody left thinking, "Oh yeah, well maybe maybe she's all right." Right. Now, what do you think about uh, Michael Douglas as Tom Sanders, though? I uh, I, I don't I think feel he it did great matches. in the part. I just felt like he was too old. Yes, uh, definitely uh, older than the part calls for. Yeah. Although, um, I mean, they do say that he is older than the Meredith in the in the book. But not mm-hmm. by so much. Yeah, it um, seemed like it was by decades. Yeah, yeah, and uh, like I, like I said, he did a great job. He played the part well. He did very well. It, it was a, a good performance. Uh, you, you wouldn't have been my first choice in casting. It, it's hard to think about. I'm, I'm like thinking back then, who would be, who would have been the perfect person to cast at that time? Uh, that's true. But you know, the other th- what worked for it too, as far as story goes, is who's going to believe. That that guy uh, was getting sexually, you know, harassed by that girl. It, right. Nobody would believe that. So, I mean, that that did kind of help with the whole story thing with the upward battle that he had in the sexual harassment lawsuit he wanted to bring. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can definitely understand that. And, you know, Michael Douglas is uh, considered a good-looking dude, but not as much so as I think they described Tom Sanders as being in the book. 
Mm-hmm. In the book, they described him as being very handsome, still very athletic. They, in fact, I believe they said he was only five pounds off of his varsity weight. Mm-hmm. Weight, <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, yeah, not not the perfect casting if you think about the book. However, it worked out for them. Obviously, they cast him because Michael Douglas was hot right then. Yes. Um, and I'm sure ticket sales did not hurt because he was in it. So if they had <laughs> no. cast some unknown person who may have fit the part based on the book better, they may not have done as well in the film because, um, you know, without the name, you, you don't necessarily have them. There are people who watch movies just because they like the actor who's in them. And I try to well, avoid that in some cases, but there are some people who I will pretty much watch anything they do. So I get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he did. I mean, a lot of people probably kind of knew what they were getting because he did just come off of doing Basic Instinct a yeah. couple of years prior. So, you know, there was, again, this huge sexual thing. And so that was your draw. I mean, a lucky guy going from Sharon Stone to Demi Moore. So <laughs> he almost uh, he almost got uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, from what I understand. I, that's I read the same thing. I was like, man, he part. really had a good 90s for him. <laughs> I, I, I love Michelle Pfeiffer, but I don't think... She she would definitely have the corporate look down, and she's definitely beautiful. But I don't think she has the same softness to to come around and get people on her side as much. Like that's the thing is, we, especially when they go into that mediation session and she turns it on to to be the poor victim. Mm. I don't I, I don't know if Michelle Pfeiffer would have pulled that off quite as well as Demi Moore did. Right. Yeah. So I yeah, think they I, I think they made that. a good choice with the casting on that. Yeah. All around, I think the casting was, was was pretty well done. No, and like I said, I think the biggest difference between book and movie was the fact that the wife stuck around. And I, I don't like the way she found out about everything, but um, it made even like when he's first sitting there during disposition, she's sitting there and having to hear all the details for the first time. Like that was interesting from a guy's standpoint to like sit there and think, like, man. You're being asked such detailed sexual questions about this encounter with another woman with your wife right there. Mm-hmm. Um, what a hot seat he was in at that time, and uh, and what a guy to like maintain your cool that whole time. But I liked the fact that the wife stuck it out. I feel like in the movie they made the wife to be a much better person than she was in the book. I think we got a little bit more character development from her. In the book, yeah. we're led to believe that she's this uh, lawyer who can't be bothered with her own family. She's just about her work. And the only time she bothers with her family is, uh, you know, as an afterthought, basically. And mm-hmm. they get into this like, big fight uh, and, you know, he ends up, like, sleeping on the couch or in the spare room or something like that uh, the, the night that this all goes down. And the fight starts because he just had this encounter uh, where he was, you know, <laughs> attacked. <laughs> and then he comes home. He's trying to cover it. He's trying to hide it. He's trying to forget about it. And then she's feeling frisky. And he's like, ah, oh, geez, not again. Mm-hmm. Um one big thing that they oh. changed in this section, well, not big, big, but um, <laughs> definitely disturbing to me, seen from the movie, not in the book, um, Donald, Donald Sutherland trying to uh, oh. eat your face. <laughs> oh, man, that's right. The nightmare thing in the elevator. <laughs> he has this dream where I did where not he's, need that. He has this dream where he's uh, oh. uh, sexually uh harassed by his his boss boss by his uh by the big boss man and he's like trying to ooh that's a nice suit can i feel it like it's it's all like it starts out somewhat innocent Very enough normal. and then and then it starts getting a little weird and he's like touching his shoulder and he's like bob bob what are you doing and then they show this close up of donald sutherland mouth open tongue out coming right at you it's like oh and god that's no. 
that was what I did need was that Donald Sutherland coming at me. Yes, yes. The rest of it, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I mean, this guy's having a nightmare because he realizes the person in power sexually harassed him, blah, blah, blah. But Donald Sutherland, I did not need him. <laughs> I, and I think the scene was added to help solidify the fact that – because I think there were still probably some people at that point in the film who hadn't read the book who are still thinking – yeah, well, why didn't he just go along with it? She's hot. He wants her. Right. Like, like, what, what's the problem here? Because there are still people who think that, and, and yes. there were characters in the book who were like that. Like, why didn't? You, like, what's wrong with you? Like, just do it. Like, she's hot. Like, she's giving you a freebie. What's the problem here? Yeah, well, I mean, Dennis Miller's that, character wanted to, said you should have just done it. Could have saved us all. Now we're none of us are going to get our money. Blah blah blah. Yeah. yeah. And in the book, there's even another character that uh, he speaks with who was previously harassed, quote unquote, by Meredith. But he claims he didn't. He claims he enjoyed it. He loved it. Yeah, he had a great time. He's like, yeah, well, she was a. He, he goes, she was a crappy lay, but you know, hey, you can't have everything. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, what the. Heck? So you know, there's people that still think that way, and especially then, there were even more people who still thought that way. So I think that scene was just a little bit of push to to really drive home the point that she was his boss. Yeah. So in her doing that, it was basically the same as if he did this. So it, it kind of helped. While I didn't need to see that <laughs> coming at that me, image, that image I understand so why, they, yeah. why they added it because it does add to the <clears> – it kind of helps solidify like, oh, wait a minute. Yes, that is his boss. His boss mm-hmm. is the one doing this to him. Um, yeah. Whether it's a female or a male, it doesn't matter. They're coming from a position of power. He's not. And so that's, <clears throat> that's why I think they added that and I, and I understand that. Yeah, and I totally get that too. You know, one of the in uh, in Michael Crichton's own words, he said that uh, in general he feels like he's been very lucky with movie versions of his books, and he's particularly happy with Jurassic Park and Disclosure. Those are the two that he's most happy with as far as adaptations. Um, which at this point right now, I'd have to agree. Though I'd probably still put The Great Train Robbery up there because I'm really happy with that one, and that was the one he did direct. So that that may be why he didn't include it because it would sound like a brag at that point. That's You're like, that's I'm true. really happy with the one I wrote. <laughs> yeah, mine, mine was the best. I wrote the book. I wrote the screenplay. I, I, yeah. Well, so on that, so the last one we had was Rising Sun, and there was obviously conflicts between him as the screener, as the writer and with the director. So this is the first movie that he ever actually did, because he's directed and written other movies too, you know, that we'll get into eventually, but this is the first film he produced. And the role of a producer, you're pretty much the money man. You know, you're you're the guy that hires the director and the writer. Uh, you also, during production, you're the one that has to coordinate the shooting, be responsible for acquiring anything for production. So the producer can, if he inserts himself, really control the end outcome of the film. Now, a lot of producers are just like, hey, yeah, here's my million bucks. I want this out when it's done type of thing. But in this case, I think I feel like he took a more control. The, one of the reasons I know that is this was originally attached to have uh, Milo's Foreman directed, who mm-hmm. he's the guy that did like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and People vs. Larry Flint and Man on the Moon. So he did a lot of stuff. But they split ways because of creative differences. So that tells me that Michael Crichton had, was involving himself a lot more in the end outcome of this because I think he didn't want to have happen what happened with Rising yeah, Sun. He did not want another Rising Sun. He's like, no, let's... So it makes me wonder, 
what kind of changes Milos was was thinking about making um, that were so drastic that Crichton would have been like, no, no, we can't do that. <clears throat> right, and because we are talking about a great filmmaker. I mean, this isn't just some nobody off the street that he's arguing with. So, I mean, I couldn't imagine. I would love to have some audio or something of conversations the two of them have because you do have a great director and then a great writer arguing about a creative difference on something. Like, that would just be so interesting to me. Yeah, it would be it would be interesting to find out some of that information, you know, kind of in the back in the background, the the inner workings and such. Yeah, but <laughs> this is the first one, and then he only produced three more movies after this. He did produce Twister, and then he produces uh, Sphere and Thirteenth Warrior, which I'm excited about when we talk about and rewatch those too. So, um, it, um, but if, yeah, I feel like that's why he flip-flopped from just doing the screenwriting because he did the screenplay for Rising Sun to doing the producing because he realized I need a little bit more control over what happens. Yeah. And I think it uh, it worked out well. Like we said, this yes. is actually a very, very good film, very solid film, uh, entertaining from start to finish. You don't... Uh, you don't feel like you're you're wasting any time. There's no moments when you're just like, oh, I wish they'd speed this up. You know, like you really have a, a good solid film there, um, and the book was was great too. So, how do you feel about John Lithgow? <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, uh, for those of you that don't, you know, we've been making sure we listen to the audio book, and I didn't have the time to finish the audio book for other reasons, but. John Lithgow is real. Now, first off, let me just say, so I do all my audiobook stuff just um, uh, through Amazon, you know. So their version of it, the guy who introduces it pronounces his name as Michael Critton. <laughs> I, I have that and, I have that in my note. It was like Christian. Michael yes, Christian. I was like. Michael Christian. And I tell you what, that annoyed the snot out of me. <laughs> it, it, me too. I wrote it down on my notes. I was like, what the. Um, one thing to note also, though. Um, I don't know if you noticed this right off the bat or if you didn't get far enough to realize this, but the version they have on Audible from Amazon that uh, John Lithgow narrates is the abridged version. Yes. I didn't I, I realize did that until I was like – there was – I forget. Somewhere in the first like three chapters, I was like, wait a minute. There should have been some – like, wait, didn't he like, – because I just read the book a few days ago, then watched the movie, and then listened to the – I listened to the book last night, uh, as a matter of fact. Because it's abridged, it's only about four hours Worth of audio, That's, a little more than four hours worth of audio. Okay, um, that makes sense. Because when it was four hours, I was like, there's something wrong here. But I didn't realize, because, yeah, I didn't get far enough into it, that that was the abridged version. Yeah, there's there's actually quite a bit, especially towards the latter half, that they, they clip. Like, the main point of the story is all there, but there's some stuff that's missing um, throughout the book. You, you recall when, you know, throughout the book, at like several points, three or four points, he mentions thinking back and, and seeing the image of that stained glass window yes. in his mind. Completely cut completely out of the film. Cut out, yes. uh, completely cut out of the film and almost completely cut out of that abridged version of the book. The only mention of that stained glass is when he's talking to Dorfman. And he and Dorfman brings up that remember, you know, when he's recalling why he broke up with Meredith in the first place. That's the only time they mention that stained glass in the abridged version of the book. So oh. it's really odd. And there's a few Which, other little things with the with the communications that they they cut out. Um, you know, like when he goes to get the copies of the um, that newsletter, the in-house company newsletter. Oh yeah, to see this mm-hmm. stuff. There's a whole scene in the movie where he goes down to where they store it. He talks to somebody there. She points out where the things are. He gets them. In the abridged version of the book, he gets the message saying, check out this. And just somehow he's got them. (laughs) He just starts Um, reading them. It's like, wait, what? I don't think um, I've ever you know listened or read an abridged version of something. I, so they pretty much just cut out the chafe and just tried to get you as 
many of the main plot points as possible. Yeah, it? it's huh. it's it's a little odd. It also cuts out the bit where he starts recalling the story that re- that makes him recall that makes him figure out that their meeting was recorded on voicemail. Completely cuts that out. No mention of this ride in a car with people who are making fun of somebody else and don't hang up the phone. And then they find out later that the whole thing was recorded on these people's voicemail. Mm. Um, no mention of that at all. He just so really what it comes down to then is the audiobook is extremely close to the movie because these are all things that were also cut out of the movie. Yeah, yeah, in some ways. Um, I mean, we still have, you know, it doesn't cut characters out. Like, for example, Dorfman, who I yeah, mentioned. Yeah, Dorfman, who's uh, not in the movie. Professor yeah. Dorfman does not appear in the in the film at all. But yeah, the audiobook, I'm glad that I read the full version. The The audiobook was good. John Lithgow did a fantastic job, actually. Um, he did a much better job of reading for children's voices than the guy that did <laughs> Rising Sun. I, I especially Sun. liked him reading The Lawyer. <laughs> him yes. doing a female with a Hispanic accent. Just imagine, just think to yourself, John Lithgow oh. doing a female voice with a Hispanic accent. And it's oh, beautiful. Yeah. It's so awesome, and I and when he first started reading, I just immediately started picturing Thirty Rock, uh, Third Rock from the Sun, and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I've been watching his um, his new show, uh, Trial and Error. I don't know if you've seen any of this. I haven't seen any of it yet, Absolutely but it, I, I'm told that my wife and I, which my wife is an attorney, which by the way, she saw part of the movie that when I was watching it, and she said, "Just so you know, that is not how dispositions happen at all." <laughs> well, it wasn't. Was, it wasn't a disposition; it was a mediation. Uh, mediation, not disposition. I'm sorry, mediation. See, I don't even know the right proper terms. I'm not the lawyer in my family, but no, she said that. Just you know, that's not how mediations happen. I'm like, okay, babe, like, it's a movie. It, it, it's a movie. Calm down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, but yeah, I, um, yeah, it, it was interesting for sure to hear that that voice. But it was also odd to hear the abridged version. And like you, I had never actually listened to an abridged version before, and I didn't know that it was abridged going in because it doesn't say abridged. No. It just doesn't say unabridged. Right. <laughs> so in know. the future, I need to make sure I watch for that because I don't necessarily want to to bother with abridged versions because I think it it distracted me from thinking about the movie differences because I was constantly like, wait a minute, didn't, you know, it, it threw me off because I was expecting certain things in the book that, that didn't come. And so I was like, I was kind of distracted by that when I was trying to make my notes for uh, the differences between the, the film. Yeah. And I should have known better when you go from Jurassic Park, that's like 14 hours long to this is four hours. I mean, this was a quicker read than Jurassic Park, but not that quick. So. Yeah, that, that was my original thought. When I saw the time on it, I thought, oh, OK, wow, this really was a quick read. Like it wasn't just my imagination that it was a quick read. It really was a quick read. Now, it wasn't that quick, though. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So now uh, one thing we were, we're talking about the lawyer. This is one of those changes that I have to put in the question mark column, and maybe you know the reason. Maybe you found the reason. Maybe you know for, for something. Mm-hmm. Why did they change the lawyer's name? Um, that is actually, I have no idea. You're talking about his lawyer, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alvarez in yeah. one version and, uh, was it? Ooh. Yeah, because Catherine was, uh, Alvarez or whatever in the, uh, in the film. Yeah, in the, in the movie it was Alvarez, and it was... Um, totally blanking now yeah, I know, me too I, well you, you said um, lawyer and oh uh, uh luis fernandez fernandez that's what uh, it was yes, yes. so yeah and i don't they, know because they're both spanish-speaking names yeah, they're women, both so they're, they're both hispanic yeah. women's names um and they they cast a hispanic woman in the part in the movie i mean so it fit it was perfect um the one thing they did in the movie that they didn't uh really do in the book they they added this aspect 
to this lawyer that she loves being in the press, that she's just all about the press. In fact, uh, yeah. Sutherland's character at one point says she'd change her name to TV listings just to get it in the paper. <laughs> yeah. That's not in the book. They, no, she's they not make that her type out of to be lawyer very at all good book, yeah. at what she does. And in fact, they, they change how he finds out about her. You know, he finds out about her in the book from a friend, you know, a, a, an acquaintance, I should say, on the ferry that he takes to work where he's, t- he's talking about, oh, yeah, we've got this lady in our office who does these cases and she's so good, blah, 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 blah. And it just, you know, happens to be good timing that he hears about this right before he has that incident. Right. And in the movie, it's another thing attributed to the A friend character where he sends a, a link to a news clipping of this lawyer. So so a little bit interesting a little bit interesting change as far as how he finds her. And I think that's, you know, a cut for time. But the name, I don't understand why they changed the name. <laughs> no. no, me either, because they did it, – it's not like in other stuff where they completely changed the ethnicity of the character or anything like that. So there was no point or no need for changing the name. So. The only thing I can think is I wonder if maybe there was somebody – um, like a real person whose name that was too close to that they didn't want to associate in, with. Yeah, they, they didn't want the association or they didn't want people to think of that person, you know. Yeah, that that would be the only thing that I could think of. True. The only other, uh, the big name change that we saw also was the name of the, the, the code name of the drive that this whole <sighs> thing is supposed to be based off. Evidently for the movie, they didn't think Twinkle was uh, a strong enough name. <laughs> Neither did I, because every time I read it in the book, I'm just thinking of Twinkies. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think I thought it was perfect because that's that's what they do with these tech things. Uh, yes. Their code names are always something silly and ridiculous, and their they are code... always something that's not what it becomes when it's in public view. So you are right; that is true. Twinkle yeah. was the perfect code name. Yeah, we had um, when I was working for my previous company, we had a product that we were putting out. And while it was in the testing phases, it was codenamed Gazelle. Um, and then the the final release name is the M two fifteen. So you know it's yeah it's uh, a little uh, bit different. You know you you get these code names for it. So I thought it was perfect for a code name. Um, I think in the movie they went more for something that would be more a name that w- that it would carry when it was released. And they gave it the Arcomax. Yeah. Arcomax. Ooh, that's yes. a strong sounding name, Arcomax. Um, <sighs> I've yeah. got a question for you on yes. a character that I think in both the book and the movie I didn't get enough of or I didn't really get a true understanding for. And maybe you can explain more. And that's Stephanie Kaplan. Hmm. So Stephanie Kaplan is the one who is a friend. Yeah, you know, she's, she's the one that's using her son at the university to send all this. Push. So she, for whatever reason, Stephanie Kaplan knows exactly what's going on the whole time. And they definitely do not tell you that in the movie necessarily. But she knew about all these other issues. She knew um, that uh, Meredith had made these changes and she's trying to help him out. What are your thoughts on her? Like, I, I kind of feel like she was an easy answer to wrap it all up or something like that even in the book um well, and maybe the, i just missed it in the book in the book they show her they i think the the thing you got to remember is that they call her the stealth bomber they call her that for a reason because she slips in and out nobody even notices she's there sometimes i think there's mm-hmm. one scene in the book where she's in meredith's office on her computer and meredith walks in and she's like what are you doing and she's like oh it's just you know checking like she has an easy explanation she goes out of there and then meredith gets all let's be clear i'm the boss now blah, 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 blah. like she gets all snippy with her but you get that sense like oh why why was she in there on her computer and how many times has she done that and not been walked in on um and then in the movie they don't show that but they do show the fact that she's sitting in on a meeting between the the big bosses talking about this merger and all this stuff that's not public knowledge yet so she's always there 
And so that's, I I feel that, okay. that I feel that that's kind of what it is is that she's she makes herself there when necessary and she finds she, out these things and she just kind of works in the background and she doesn't want to come out and and say like here's what's happening but she also wants to you know she doesn't want this person in power either so I mean, right. ultimately and she, she ends knows, up getting the job so it works out yeah. well for her yeah it works out well for her but I, okay I see that because I and I remember her having a much better character development in the book and I think I was just more so just really lost in the movie like I didn't feel like they showed that as well and if going from reading the book to the movie though you do get and that makes sense she was just that fly on the wall she was just completely always under the radar didn't do too much to get noticed but didn't do too little to get fired um, but she almost was kind of a corporate spy thing for herself just so she made sure she knew everything that was going on and in the end it all worked out for her yeah yeah and then that's kind of how I read it and I kind of didn't kind of make a, an amalgamation of the two the book version and the movie version in my mind to form the my final <laughs> version of the character but uh, yeah that's just kind of how I saw it she was just the the one that was in the background like she's always just the right place to hear the things and you notice um they did this in the book and the movie, actually. They showed this. In the book, they described it a little better. I think because they actually say it, you catch it more than you do in the movie. But there's a scene when they're right after Meredith's first speech, when she's going around and talking to all the division heads that she did not name in her speech. And that's a that's a talking point. They're like, oh, it's like, you wonder why she didn't name the people um, and why would why wouldn't she name them unless she was planning on making changes? But then mm-hmm. she's going around to each of them and talking to them individually, you know, just to try to head off any fears about that. But you notice in both in the book they specifically say it, but in the movie they just show it happening. Where Kaplan just she knows the exact right time to just disappear. Yep. Right. But you know, Meredith's coming their way. She hasn't really seen them yet, but she but Kaplan has seen Meredith heading that way and just. She's just gone. Boom. Poof. Mm-hmm. Um, she just knows when when to be someplace and when not to be someplace. <laughs> and that's uh, so I think that that translates to the rest of her character. And that's probably how she got where she is and where she got this information. And she knows how to uh, to figure this out. Yeah. And how to work it and everything. And I did like even um, even though it was a change from movie to book, I did like how um, at the very end when uh, Sanders, Michael Douglas character is talking to Kaplan's son. And, mm-hmm. uh, and and just and, and they're spelling it all out for you, uh, but it was really well done. And the son's just kind of got this like kind of smile, like he got caught, but he knows he's not in trouble type of thing. Yeah. And um, I like I, it ended really well. The uh, the the movie did. I, this was from beginning to end. I tried to pick out some part that I was pleased disturbed by, and I wasn't. I actually thought I might be disturbed by the virtual reality when they go into the corridor, but um, Industrial Light and Magic did this, and ILM did an amazing job of virtual re- – I mean, shoot, we just finished creating dinosaurs, so yeah, I can make a hallway <laughs> with drawers and – you know. So even the virtual reality was not uh, you know, super cheesy 80s-like uh, computer graphics or anything. No, yeah, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't too bad at all. And I, for some reason, I remember that scene dragging out the first time I saw the movie – and, but it didn't, you know. When I'm watching it again, I'm like, no, that it was pretty quick. He goes in, gets in and out. It's a little bit different from the book. Uh, one thing we don't really see a whole lot in the movie from the executives of this other company, the company that's mm. trying to acquire Digicom. And um, in the book, they play a much bigger part. We see yep. two of their top executives uh, being really a part of this whole cover-up thing. One of them being helpful, and the other one not so much. Um, <clears throat> 
We don't see that in the film. In the film, the only they're only there to uh, provide a reason for this system to have been set up, basically, for him to get in there and, and mess around with it, which I thought was interesting also because in the book, he didn't have to break into a hotel room to use it. He just went to the one in the office. He was able to get in because he found somebody else dropped a key card <laughs> that he happened to pick up. And then later on, it's like, oh, my axe has been revoked. But, hey, I picked up this key card off the ground earlier and... So, Which was almost too convenient for the book. Yeah, it, it was Now a little... that you bring that up, that I, I that is true. That is almost too convenient. Where it, with the movie, you know, he does have to break into this hotel and everything, yeah. and you know, instead of conveniently just finding a key card. <laughs> I thought that too, and I thought it was odd because it was a throwaway bit because they, they didn't have to. Yeah, they revoked his access to the computer. They brought him down to a level one from a level five or whatever. But there's no necessarily, you know, while they're still trying to, you know, create the illusion that he works for them, there's no reason for them to block his access to parts of the building. They wouldn't. Right. They wouldn't have thought to do that because they didn't. Even, they didn't even think about this corridor as far as being. They thought that locking his access out completely locked his access out. They didn't. Even, they weren't even thinking about the corridor. So, the him needing that key card was convenient but also unnecessary because there was no reason for him to really add the fact that they cut off his access to parts of the building it was just kind of a it was a convenient uh workaround for an unnecessary plot point (laughs) (laughs) right but it doesn't really take anything away because it's literally boom boom it's like whatever what i did like about this book is that that's an example of a couple of times where you do get these really good foreshadowing things that you don't really catch until you know you're near the end. You're like, oh yeah, like they mention, like oh um, yeah, my son's a my son's a, a chemistry major at the university. Okay, throwaway line. You think right? No, no. Mm-hmm. Later on, you're like, oh, it turns out that a friend is Arthur Friend, a chemistry professor at Washington University, and it doesn't click for him there, and it doesn't didn't click for me until after I'd seen the movie and read the book and been like, oh, they they're telling us right away. They're te- they're already telling us. They're already setting um, it up. Yep, yep. Yeah, there's a couple of little things like that where they, you know, really kind of kind of bait the hook a little bit, and you don't catch it necessarily first off. But when you rewatch it, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. And I I always like a good a movie where it's clever enough that they give away all that stuff kind of in the beginning and letting you know of everything that's going on, and you have to piece it together the second time around. Yeah. yeah. Um, one more change they made from the book to the movie which i thought was interesting and i thought added a bit of depth to the the character of tom sanders okay was the muhammad jafar character in the book jafar is this in the book and the movie jafar is the foreman of the malaysia plant where all this these changes have been made that is causing these drives to fail and in the book he is sick they think he's got he, they think he's been cursed he's been sent to a witch doctor because he's sick he can't come he can't talk to sanders because he's not there because because he's sick and then you find out later that he was actually sent away uh on a vacation to an area that doesn't have any phone service or fax lines or anything at all so he, there's no way because they know that this guy is an honest guy and it would tell sanders what was going on so they you know just allude to they just like we, we got to get rid of this guy and so they do and then at the end, he like comes back. He's like, I, I, you know, that's that's one of the reasons that he's able to figure all this out. In the movie, they make Sanders basically being kind of friends with not friends with this guy, but he, he's an underling. He's somebody who works for Sanders, but Sanders is working tirelessly to try to get him this like di- these Disney tickets, which I thought was funny for a guy named Jafar. Um, yes. But, 
he's getting these Disney tickets and these hotel upgrades for his family to take a trip to Disneyland or Disney World or something. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, his wife even comments, you know, you're the only person I knew who sucks up to the people below him. Below him. Yeah. I love that quote in there. Yes. And that makes it much more uh, realistic that later on he would call this guy and be like, I need a favor. I need you to do something for me. And, mm-hmm. of course, he does it because, hey, this is the guy who got me my Disney tickets. This is the guy who takes you – know, this guy takes care of me, you know. Um, so I, I thought that – I liked that change from the book to the movie as far as the Jafar character's interaction with Sanders. How did you feel about him? I really liked him. I, well, and I liked it because it helps develop more of Sanders' characters that he's really just kind of a good guy. So while you might see him smacking somebody on the butt as a sexual harassment, he's just a kind of a good old boy, and he cares about everybody around him because even – his lawyer makes the comment the night before all this stuff's going down when Sanders is like, you know, I still got to get so-and-so done, whatever it was. And his lawyer even says, you know, you're the only person I know of that at this point is thinking about how to better their job. Yeah. You know, and that's just, they, they showed so much of how he really was just a good character, which, you know, they definitely in the end picked the wrong guy to set up for this fall where they thought they were picking the right guy because he was so meek and quiet. Maybe they just yeah. thought uh, he's just going to roll over. Well, no, this was the last straw type of thing. He is a nice guy, but he's not going to roll over. Yeah. I, yeah, it was just a perfect storm of timing and everything. I mean, had he not heard about that particular lawyer, which, uh, you know, in the movie they take care of that with the anonymous email, you know, that's that's who tells them about it. But, yeah, it's just kind of one of those things. That even, even in the book they show that, you know, when other people are making these sexual jokes that, you know, may be considered harassment this day and age just being made, he's not – actively encouraging it he's not in you know partaking in the joke he's not telling any of the jokes himself but he's also not stopping them he's just kind of chuckling and moving on he's kind of humoring the like you can tell the the sense that i got from the character was that he doesn't really find it all that amusing but he also doesn't really care he doesn't find it harmful he's just kind of like yeah okay whatever that that that's who that's who that guy is Right. And I think that translates to how they thought of him as a person. Like he just would be like, okay, just I'll, I'll go along with that. I might not like it, but I'll go along with it. And uh, like you said, they just one straw too many, or just the the wrong specific combination of stimuli to to set him off. Mm-hmm. No, and because of that, I just. <sighs> I was try like I said I was try before I was trying to find something to complain about this movie but this is actually a movie that I would go back and rewatch. In fact, I just I don't own it so I did the, you know, rental so yeah. I think I got 48 hours. I'm probably going to watch it again uh in the next 24 hours just because I really enjoyed the movie. You know. Yeah. I, like I said, I'm not sure why I had such a bad memory of this film in my mind. <laughs> so anyone out there listening, if you think, oh, I saw Disclosure back in the 90s and I hated it, I encourage you to give it another watch. As, like I said, yeah, the, the tech references are going to be a little uh, laughable. You know, you look at the cell phones they're using, you look at the uh, um, <laughs> the computers they're using and the, the technology. The, the whole thing, this whole thing hinges on this super fast CD-ROM drive. <laughs> Yeah, a CD-ROM drive. Yes, yes. Um, that alone shows you the age of it. Yeah. Um, but besides that, everything else holds up very well. The acting is fantastic throughout. Um, everybody does a great job. It's just really a great uh, – it, it's just really a good movie. Like I, I highly recommend it. I'm, and I was 
surprised to to have my cha- my thinking changed by rewatching it. Right. Well, and then at the same point, if there's anybody out there who maybe you did watch the movie like us a long time ago and you didn't like it, before you watch it again, let us know why you didn't like it. Like, like because I can't remember why it is I didn't like it or what it was about <laughs> it. So, I mean, or at least, yeah, give us a call, shoot us a message. You can, you know, reach us so many different ways. And we always tell you it's just Crichton Cast, whether you go to Facebook or Twitter or CrichtonCast.com and leave us a note. You can call us um, and just leave us a voicemail if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Email us. What is it? Info at CrichtonCast.com. Exactly. For the email. So plenty of ways. We'd love to hear from you. Um, specifically, if, and maybe it was just an age thing, Eric. Maybe it's just because like, now that I'm closer to 40, this is a very different movie than when I was in my early 20s and saw it the first time. So maybe that's what part of it is. <laughs> it could be. It really could be. Because, yeah, I remember seeing it. I don't think I saw it in theaters. But I think I saw it shortly after its uh, video release, and I just remember not really enjoying it. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, One thing I do want to mention before we – I know we're probably getting close to wrapping up on this one. But one thing I did want to mention, we had talked – I don't know if we've talked about it specifically on the show, but we've talked with uh, people on Twitter about this, about the lack of sex scenes in most Crichton (laughs) novels. I think in this one we discover why. There's a lack of sex scenes in Crichton's novels. This would be the one low point for me in this book. The description of the encounter between Sanders and Meredith seemed so clinical to me. It really seemed like a doctor writing a sex scene, which, I mean, obviously, technically it was. It was, technically, Um, but very true, yes. This was not not anything you're going to read some, you know, erotic literature or anything like that by any means. You're not going to take the the scene from Disclosure up to your bunk. You know, this is not something that... (sighs) It was. It just. It came off as very clinical. I mean, I I've seen worse written sex scenes. I mean, I've seen excerpts from Bill O'Reilly's book where he tried to write a sex scene. Oh my gosh, I don't know how anyone could have those ideas about anatomy. Like that's just that's not how this works. That's not how any but, of this works. Right, and <laughs> but, when you're using medical terms for thing, yeah. 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 But yeah, this is definitely not a, a hot scene. The one low point, I think, from the book. There were no other scenes in the book where I specifically thought, ugh, just this one. Because later they're describing yeah. it and they're doing it very clinically because they're in des- you know, deposition or mediation and they're, they're describing the encounter clinically. And that sure. makes sense. But in the actual heat of the moment when he's describing the scene in the first place, it, it comes across a little clinical, I think. Mm-hmm. No, it does. And that's very true. And luckily, I think from here going forward, we're pretty lucky to where he goes back to sticking with science and stuff like that, that he's good at writing. So, <laughs> yeah. So now we know we, we asked, hey, how come there are no uh, sex scenes in any of these Crichton books? Well, because he, he writes a lot of things well. He writes science well. He writes science fiction well. He writes corporate drama well. He writes legal drama well. Everybody's got to have something they're not good at, too, you know. <laughs> And sex was his thing. And because if he did keep put sex into all of his novels, we would not be here today talking about this. It would have stopped at Andromeda Strain. So. <laughs> exactly. Or before before that even, when he was just writing under a pseudonym. So, yeah. Which uh, I'm, I'm curious about because those books, they look more the style to have sex scenes in them. The, the way that I, I haven't read any of them yet. Some of these older like mystery novels that he wrote. So I'm very curious the, as to whether or not he he's chose to skip those scenes even back then or mm. if if we're going to run in because eventually we're going to have to to read those whether we talk about them on the show or not we're definitely going to have to read some of those the the John Lang novels and <laughs> things like this 
Um, I also want to find, evidently, at some point he wrote under the pseudonym Michael Douglas. I'm very curious I, to find out what he wrote. under. I, I, I read that somewhere, but I'm like, I haven't seen any books credited to Michael Douglas as, my, you know, Michael Crichton as Michael Douglas. So I'm curious about that. It was just one of those little trivia factoids that, oh, Michael Douglas is in this movie, and Michael Crichton once wrote under the pseudonym Michael Douglas. But I haven't seen that book, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I haven't either. Um, so And I didn't know that until, as you were doing, we were researching for this and saw this little factoid. And I thought, huh, I did not remember Michael Douglas being a uh, one that he read under. Because it was always John Lange and uh, Jeffrey Hudson yeah. before. So. Yeah. so I'll have to figure out. There must be one book out there that he uh, he wrote <laughs> under Michael Douglas, I guess. So, <laughs> But, yeah, other than that, that's my, my one complaint for this book. Um Really, no serious complaints for the movie. Other than what we've we've talked about, you know, certain changes that. Oh, I did have one one more question mark change. Oh, one more okay. question mark right. change. We're not done yet, people. <laughs> Just you know, like it, like with the name, with the lawyer, but that has a plausible explanation that we've already talked about. It could have been that there's a real person named that that they didn't want to confuse with. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Yeah. Here's here's my question mark change of this episode. Okay. Why did the meeting time change? From six to seven. I don't know. <laughs> I know. It's just one of those little things in in the book. The meetings at one time in the movie. It's at another, and and I know we're getting nitpicky at this point because who pays attention to that crap? But still, it's one of those curious things. Ever since we did the first episode with Andromeda Strain, and the city is in two different states, like why do you do this? Yeah. It's just, yeah, I, I want to have at least one question mark change for, for each thing. And this one, it didn't really have many because it did have changes, but they all made, you know, you could tell the reasoning behind the changes. Right. This one, there is no logical explanation to, to change that um, unless the, the book was written during J- Daylight Savings Time and the movie was written <laughs> during Standard Time. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that, I, it's just one of those little things, and it just it only jumped out at me because I happened to watch the movie right after reading the book. So I was like, oh, wait a minute. That was a different time in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Uh, that one I don't know, but I, it is fun to find those things. So uh, I'll be excited for it in our next episode. Um, unfortunately, I think we'll be finding quite a few of them, but we'll see how that <laughs> one goes. So. I did find – so um, the pseudonym Michael Douglas, he wrote one single book under that. It was Dealing in uh, 1970, and the reason it's Michael Douglas is because he wrote it with his brother, Douglas Crichton. Oh, okay. And so they just use their first names, but it's called Dealing or the Berkeley to Boston 40 Brick Lost Bag Blues. Yeah, which has me so curious about it. Yes. I must read um, this. I absolutely must read this now. But here's the other thing. So, you know, I do a lot of Twitter searching for Michael Crichton and stuff, and every once in a while, issues of Playboy shows up. Well, now mm-hmm. I know why. This was serialized in December 1970, January 71, and February 71 issues of Playboy magazine. Oh. So I'm going to have to find those three issues now because, yes, he serialized uh, this book um, as a three-part thing in Playboy. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Quite a Hmm. few uh, books that I've read or short stories that I've read have been originally published that way. 
Especially, uh, you know, in the Bond universe, uh, Fleming did quite a bit for Playboy as well. So, oh, yeah. Very interesting. <clears throat> well, now um, now my wife's going to be wondering why I'm eBaying on Playboy magazines, but that's <laughs> what's going to happen now. So, yeah, no, I guess it's, uh, it's a book that's all about uh, this California girlfriend and a Harvard graduate and their ill-fated, ill-fated plan to smuggle a suitcase full of marijuana from Berkeley to Boston. So that's why it's the Berkeley to Boston 40 Break Lost Bag Blues. Um <laughs> Uh, apparently, oh, Crichton this gets wrote and the book. Oh my goodness! Yeah, Crichton wrote the book from beginning to end, and then his brother rewrote the book, and then Crichton rewrote the book again. Uh, but it, it's uh, a lot of the reception was really good for it. So right. interesting. Yeah, we are definitely going to have to check that out. That, that oh. sounds fun. Interesting. All right. Well, that would be good. Well, everybody, I thank you for uh, hanging out with us for the hour to talk about disclosure. Please read the uh, book or watch the movie. Uh, skip the audio book, uh, especially if it's the abridged version, because you're just missing out at that point. And you might as well watch the movie. Yeah, I would only recommend it if you have read the full novel. Like, don't don't use the audio book instead of the book. But if you want to do it in addition to the book, it is on Audible, and it's only like four bucks on Audible. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like you know, don't use a don't use a credit if you have. Have Audible and you use it. Don't use one of your credits for this one no. because it's not worth it. Use, uh, you know, just buy it. It's four bucks. John Lithgow does an amazing job. Um, yes, it's that actually I, that very, I very. It's very, very well read. It's just, it is the abridged version, and so I would, I would recommend only listening to it if you have read the uh, the full novel because otherwise you will miss out on certain things. There, are, there are certain things that if I hadn't read the book, I would be wondering. So. Mm-hmm. No, and um, and don't listen to Roger Ebert. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about because he said that this film was just a launch pad for sex scenes and only gave it two stars. I really don't agree with that. There's really only one big sex scene, and I would say three stars at least. So Yeah, um, yeah I hadn't read that review, but that's yeah. interesting considering, yeah, there is only the one sex scene. It's not gratuitous at all because it – it is literally the driving point of the movie. It's not just uh, okay. We've got we've got five minutes to kill. Um, let's have these people have sex. No, there you it's, go. It's a main point of the film. Yeah. This scene, right. and I think it's very well done in the movie as far as you know what you see and what you don't see. Um, you really get that dynamic of he starts out. You know, it, much as it is in the book, as, as much as I complain about the scene in the book, it does accurately portray his feelings. You know, he's going into this meeting thinking that it's a business meeting and then she's turning it sexual. And he's like, I, I don't I don't feel comfortable with this. But he does get to a point where, you know, as people do when they're aroused, when s- sense goes out the window sometimes and you mm-hmm. really have to fight to think clearly. And he gets to that point. He gets to that point where he's like, you know what? Screw it. Let's do this. And then. I, I really love the reason he comes back from it in the book. They don't they don't uh, do this. They any, don't allude to it, though. She does still do it in the movie. Yeah, in the they yeah. I thought that was interesting, but they never yeah. say that's the reason. In fact, actually, what they do is they show him seeing a reflection of himself in the movie, and he looks at himself and he's like, "What am I doing?" Right. Um, you know, he gets that reflection of himself in the glass of the window, and it's kind of that that hazy half reflection you get, and he's looking at himself, going, "What am I? What are, what are we doing here?" Um, whereas in the book, she coughs and it just takes him out of the moment completely because he's like, who coughs during? Nobody coughs during. Nobody. After, mm-hmm. sure, uh, but not during. Like, that just doesn't happen. Like, she wasn't she wasn't there and it took me out of the moment. So and that's when he really starts to realize that, hey, something was wrong. This was a setup. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I, I and they did have the cough in the movie still, so they did uh, you know keep that alive. But yep. yeah, in the book is where they explain that as the reasoning, which totally does make sense. Yeah, yeah, 
in the in the movie that she coughs and then he looks up so it's kind of the reason you know, like it, it jolts his attention that's why he looks up and sees himself in the mirror but you're really led to believe it's him seeing himself in the glass reflection that causes him to stop whereas yeah. in the book they specifically say it was the the unconscious thought process of her coughing meaning she's not being she's not involved right so i, I thought well, that part so, was well uh, done in that scene in both the movie and the and the book even though the mm-hmm. the actual sex in the scene was not <laughs> as good no <laughs> in the book yeah so there we go all right so uh now we're gonna end it now i think we're good did you have any other questions i didn't have oh uh, yeah there was this one scene no <laughs> <laughs> this was a good book this was a you know uh Definitely a book and a movie I'd read again. And so this was a good one. I had a lot of fun with this episode, Eric. I hope you did too. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, everybody, again, CrichtonCast.com. You can email us, reach out to us. We also are on Facebook and Twitter at CrichtonCast. If you want to get down to it, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail, 802-Jurassic, um, and give us a call there. Uh, listen to some of the other episodes, too. Let us know what you think of Rising Sun and Jurassic Park and uh, The Great Train Robbery, which right now is still probably one of my favorites, I think, I just I, because I rediscovered that movie. But The Terminal Man and uh, Casey of need so many other great things that now that i'm saying them out loud i just want to go back and rewatch some of the movies <laughs> or reread them so <laughs> yeah absolutely um yeah definitely uh check out the past episodes uh pick and choose we, we don't number them for a reason they are on the website in chronological order so if you want to go back to the beginning you can see which ones we did first but it doesn't matter what order you listen to them and just pick the pick the book you're interested in give us a listen Shoot us a message and let us know what you think. If there's something that you would like us to do that we're not doing, if there's something we're doing that you don't think we should be doing, we, we, you know, we don't guarantee we'll change, but we will definitely take it under advisement. We'd love to hear from you one way or the other. So, uh, like you said, Twitter, Facebook, email, voicemail, the website has a contact form. Uh, we, we make it as easy as possible for you to get a hold of us. And thank you again for listening, uh, and enjoy your Michael Crichton future reading and movie watching. Hey everybody, Eric here to tell you about a special promotion my charity, Comicare, is running. We are up for a challenge, and we need your support. At Comicare, we spend all year traveling to hospitals and collecting smiles from children and their families, and leave comic books behind to keep the smiles going. Well, now we want to see your smiles, and we want to post them on our pages, too. This July 20th through 23rd, we will bring Arizona Tony Stark to the San Diego International Comic Con and take on one of our biggest challenges yet. We will have four days to collect as many pictures as we can of smiling supporters with Tony. How many can we collect? A hundred? Three hundred? Five hundred? We'll run for the 1,000 mark, but you never know. Will you pledge a couple of pennies for each photo we collect? Just think, if you pledge just two cents per picture and we collect a hundred photos, your donation will be two dollars. If we collect a thousand, twenty dollars. Either way, a small price to pay to be part of our continuing mission. We appreciate all your support in the past and we know you will enjoy being a part of this adventure. So please visit comicare.org slash 1000smiles. That's C-O-M-I-C-A-R-E dot org slash 1000smiles. Visit our page, click that pledge button, and throw us a couple of cents per smile. 